In this week's message, I want to look at the subject of money and how much are we called to give to the needy. Now, uh, this is something that has challenged me personally as I've been preparing these messages on mercy and justice. You know, we've seen already that one of the tests of true faith is our response to the needs of others. A couple of weeks ago in my message, Sheep or Goat, I quoted from Matthew 25, where Jesus makes it very clear that when he comes again in glory, those who will inherit his kingdom are those who have cared for the needs of his brothers and sisters. One of the great preachers of Scotland, Robert Murray McShane, preached a sermon on that passage over 150 years ago. And uh, this is what he said to his congregation. He says, I'm concerned for the poor, but more concerned for you. I know not what Christ will say to you in the great day. I fear there are many hearing me who may know now that they are not Christians because they do not love to give. To give largely and liberally, not grudgingly at all, requires a new heart. An old heart would rather part with its lifeblood than its money. Oh, my friends, he says, enjoy your money. Make the most of it. Give none away. Enjoy it quickly. For I can tell you, you will be beggars throughout eternity. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I bet they had a good offering that week. But of course, that wasn't McShane's motive. Uh, he was a truly godly man, and you could be sure he was genuinely concerned for their souls and for the spiritual well-being of his flock. You know, our church does give largely and liberally, and especially when it comes to mercy and justice issues. The recent spontaneous offering of over $20,000 to help a group of abused women somewhere in the Middle East is clear evidence of that as is the tens of thousands of dollars that are given to our benevolence fund that are helping people in need on the seacoast, helping people in recovery, and in the past has helped to rescue sex workers in Mumbai, uh, bring relief to the poor in Nepal, and so on. You know, it's such a privilege to belong to a church like this. But is it enough? Do I give enough? You see, that's what I'm asking myself. Do we as a church give enough to relieve the suffering of others and to see broken lives restored? What are we called to give? Now, some will say if you give 10% or a tithe of your income to the church, that's all we're required to give. But you know, the Pharisees were sticklers for tithing, and yet Jesus called them hypocrites. He said, you know, you tithe your mint and your dill and cumin, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law, like justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Other people would say that the Christian should uh, seek to live on the bare minimum and give everything else away. And they might quote Jesus's response to the rich young ruler who wanted to know how he might inherit eternal life. And Jesus said, go sell all you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. But surely, you know, those, both those situations are really about heart attitudes. The issue of giving and sharing what we have with the needy is a heart issue. So I want us to examine our hearts and because this is Easter week, I'd like to do that by looking at a story in John 12, where we see two very different heart attitudes, that of Mary and that of Judas. 
And it's the lesson of Judas that I really want to focus on. It's what I've called the Judas effect. So let's read from uh, John chapter 12 and verse 1. It says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And here a dinner was given in Jesus' honour. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. And then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. So this dinner you know, took place the weekend before Jesus shared the Last Supper with his disciples and was crucified. It's the week before Easter. And the dinner that Martha and Mary are hosting here for Jesus seems to be to honour and to thank Jesus for giving life back to their brother Lazarus, who he'd recently raised from the dead. Right? This is to honour Jesus, the Lord of life. And Martha, as usual, is preparing the meal, but it's Mary who steals the show. What she does is outrageous. It's shocking, really, right? that she poured out this expensive perfume worth... A year's wages, I mean, let that sink in, right? A year's wages poured out onto the feet of Jesus. Now, we don't know whether this was a family heirloom or whether the family bought it specially, intending on demonstrating their love and devotion to Jesus in this very costly and extravagant act. You can just imagine, can't you, the room being filled with this amazing fragrance. But the thing I want to focus on here is the response of Judas as he protested this wastefulness. Now, to be fair, he wasn't the only disciple voicing his disapproval and how the money could have been given to the poor. Both Matthew and Mark in their Gospels make that clear. But here, Judas is singled out because behind his protest, there was a darker motive. As it says there uh, in verse 6, he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas was the treasurer of their apostolic band. It seems that they had a common purse that he was in charge of to buy food and to give gifts to the poor. In fact, when Judas left the Last Supper to go and betray Jesus, the others assumed that Jesus had told him to go and get supplies or to give money to the poor, which was common practice. They didn't realize until later, after he'd betrayed Jesus, that he'd been pilfering from the money bag. And so John, when he writes about Judas protesting Mary's actions, he calls out his hypocrisy. He makes it very clear what his motives were, that he cared nothing for the poor, only for himself. He was a traitor and a thief. And of course, you know, the inclusion of Judas in the apostolic band and why Jesus would knowingly choose him, uh, if you read John 6 verse 70, I mean, that's been the subject of much debate. One quick answer is that it was to fulfill prophecy 
as Jesus indicated at the Last Supper. But Jesus, you know, he also serves as a very vivid illustration of the person that Jesus describes in Matthew 7, uh, where he says, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Right? That's Judas. Judas did those things, along with the other apostles, along with many other people in history. And yet there will be those among them who are like Judas, to whom Jesus will then say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. As uh, John Piper commented on that, he says, What a vivid lesson to learn that right doctrine, in other words, Lord, Lord, you know, we know who you are, got that doctrine right, Lord, Lord, and religious activity and miracle working, you know, like we've cast out demons, we've healed people. He says it proves nothing about saving faith and being born again. That's the lesson of Judas. But that's not the lesson I want us to look at here. I think what we see in this story of Mary and Judas is how the love of money can blind us to what is truly beautiful and valuable in this world. I think it illustrates the warning that Jesus gives in Matthew 6, 40, 24, where he says, No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. But you cannot serve both God and money. Mary loved Jesus. Judas loved money. And the thing is, you cannot be devoted to both. You cannot serve both. Judas couldn't, and neither will you or I. Judas proved the point that the Apostle Paul made in his letter to Timothy. Listen to this in 1 Timothy 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, it's not just money, it's the love of money, is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. That's describing Judas, isn't it? That's what happened to him. It's describing anyone whose focus is on having more. It's describing people who are, who are continually driven to increase their standard of living, who are not content with the basic necessities of life, of food and clothing and somewhere to live, but so intent on accumulating treasure on earth and the security and the comfort that they think that that brings, that they become blinded to what is of true value, the treasure that we have in heaven that Jesus offers us and that we find in him. Mary valued that treasure. It's why she was happy to pour out a whole year's wages on the feet of Jesus. She'd come to see that, that there was nothing in comparison to the life that Jesus offers, the eternal life that he gives. Jesus hadn't even been raised from the dead yet, but she'd got a glimpse of him, the Lord of life, when he raised her brother Lazarus. You see, Jesus is the one who gives us life, who says to us, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you always. Money won't say that to you. Again, one more John Piper quote from his book, uh, Money, Sex and Power, uh, where he writes, when you're dying, money walks away from you. It abandons you. 
it will not go with you to help you. And nothing that you bought with it can go either. Money will leave you. Jesus says, I will never leave you. That's why Mary was devoted to Jesus. She'd give up everything for Jesus. She valued him more than all that money could buy, right? Judas, however, been blinded by the lure of money and all the empty promises that it makes. And that's what Paul was warning Timothy about. It's the Judas effect. It's the love of money or what it can buy you and how, you know, we can fall into temptation and a trap because it can lead us to foolish and harmful desires that bring ruin and destruction and may even draw people away from the faith and cause them much grief. I mean, just look at the grief it caused Judas, betraying Jesus for just 30 pieces of silver. And then when he, he seemed to come to his senses, it was too late and he couldn't bear to live with himself anymore. And so he took his own life. If only he'd loved Jesus, he would have found life, everlasting life. He probably thought he could serve Jesus and have the money, but he proved Jesus right. You cannot serve both. You cannot be devoted to both. The problem is, do we really know our own hearts? The Bible says the heart is deceitful, right? That's why we have all these warnings. So how can we be sure that we're not succumbing to the lure of money and materialism, the fear that we don't have enough, the unquenchable desire for more things? The answer is to give money away. It's by being generous, pouring our lives on Jesus as we share with others what we have received, our time, our money, our faith, and so on. And that seems to be Paul's remedy in his instructions to Timothy. Listen to what he goes on to say in chapter 6. He says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Right? This is so helpful from Paul. Uh, let, me just, let me just break this down. First, we need to recognize that those who are rich in this present world includes you and me, right? You and I are almost certainly wealthier than 90% of the world's population. We are rich in this present world. And we're told here not to be arrogant. Why? Because whatever we've been blessed with is from God. Of course, people will argue, well, no, I earned what I have. I can do what I want with my money. I've worked hard for it. No, that's arrogance, because the Bible is clear that it is God who gives us the ability to produce wealth, and he gives some greater ability than others. But for all of us, everything we have is from God. It's God who gives us life, who gives us our health, our abilities and opportunities. Right? He determined when and where we would be born. And so we should be humble and grateful for everything that we have and put our hope in God and not in ourselves or what we think we can achieve. But I love what Paul says next here because he says God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. I love that about God, right? He's not a killjoy. In the Old Testament, he even commanded feast days. He doesn't want us to live miserable lives. 
we can enjoy the good things of life and thank God for them. Paul doesn't say it's wrong to be wealthy or that we shouldn't enjoy what we have. What he does say is we should be generous and willing to share what we have with others. That we're to be rich in good deeds. You know, there's nothing wrong with wealth as long as we don't just spend it all on ourselves. We are called to invest it in relieving the suffering of others rather than just increasing our own comfort, right? That's what it means to be rich in good deeds. So who should we be willing to share with? As I've said in previous messages, I think it's got to start with our own family. Right? in helping them and providing for them, which means our extended family. Many of us find ourselves in a situation where we have elderly parents and also children who need our help. And we're not talking here about luxuries, but the basic needs of life, of food and shelter. It's something that Paul also addresses with Timothy in chapter 5. In fact, he's pretty strong about it. He says, anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever, right? Uh, so that's where we start, our own relatives. And I think that must also include making reasonable provision for ourselves where we have the means to do so, so that we don't burden our relatives with our own needs later on in life. But beyond our own family, the scriptures are clear that our generosity should also extend out to the family of God, to other believers, and especially those who have need in our own church body. But as we've been seeing in this series, it has to extend even beyond that as we consider who our neighbor is, right? We can't just ignore the issues of poverty and injustice in the world, and that might be local, but it's also global because it's the wealthy 10% of the world's population who have 85% of the global wealth. So as Paul wrote to the Galatians, he says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. Right? It has to start at home. So let's be rich in good deeds. Let's be generous and willing to share. It's the antidote to the Judas effect, the soul-destroying lure of money and materialism. And of course, we can't dictate what that looks like for each person and each family. Everyone's situation is different. And at the end of the day, every one of us will have to give an account to God for how we've stewarded what he's given us. But I do believe that we're called to give sacrificially. You see, I think that's the test. I need to ask myself, am I willing to go without something in order to help someone else? Am I willing to share someone's burden by taking on some of that burden myself? Am I willing to let it cut into my lifestyle? Because that's what Jesus did for us. And it didn't just cut into his life, it cost him his life. He poured out his life for us so that we might have life eternal life. He became poor so that we might have the riches of heaven. And that's what prompted Mary to so generously and extravagantly pour out this perfume upon Jesus, and Jesus praised her for it. But he rebuked Judas and the others for their attitude. He said this, he said, you will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Referring there to the fact that he would soon be laying down his life. Some might think that Jesus was being dismissive of the poor there, like, you know, they'll always be around, so why bother? 
the disciples would have known exactly what he was saying uh, because they would have known he was quoting from Deuteronomy 15 verse 11 which says this there will always be poor people in the land therefore I command you to be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land right it wasn't uh, the poor will always be with you, so don't worry too much about them. No, it was, therefore, be open-handed. Be generous. Share what you have with the poor and needy. I'm commanding this, says the Lord. You see, what Mary did in pouring out this expensive perfume upon Jesus at such great cost to herself was entirely appropriate in the light of his impending crucifixion and burial. But what she did for Jesus, Jesus expects us to do for others, pouring out our lives for the needs of others, because what we do for them, we do for him. That's what this story is telling us. Love Jesus, not money. God bless you this week.